Well, it's always hard. I feel like I've already been to church. So I, um, this text, however, uh, I, I will say just to kind of let you into how the sausage is made a little bit. Um, normally on Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, I, I start the process of getting ready for next Sunday. And typically once you really start studying, reading, getting into that text, you've got a fairly good idea of, of what the sermon's going to look like. That, in fact, if you do your job the way you're supposed to do it, what the main idea of what the text is, what the main idea of what the passage teaches better be the main idea of your sermon. Or you're not preaching the Bible, you're preaching your opinion about the Bible, and I, I, I try not to do that. But this, or occasionally, rarely, but occasionally, as the week progresses and as I, I pray through and, and apply that text to my own heart, um, the sermon kind of takes a direction that's surprising and different. And this is one of those times. Um, this text it, it, on it, its face is very, very clear that Paul is is upset and worried, and he wants to see those guys in Thessalonica. Um, but I think that as we dig deeper this morning, you'll see uh, that there's, there's a big picture here that, that's going to be kind of shocking. So I know we've been out of First Thessalonians for the last few weeks, so let's take just a moment and back up to, to where we were and, and kind of walk through what the text leads us up to this point. So recall that Paul uh, was in what is modern-day Turkey, uh, and he w- wanted to go east toward India, uh, but the Holy Spirit closed that door, and so then he was going to go north, and they couldn't, and then they were going to go south, and they couldn't, and they, Paul had no idea where to go. Everything seemed to be, every door he tried to go through seemed to be cl- closed, and uh, then he, he, he has a vision of a guy from Macedonia who says, come over and, and help us. And so Paul realizes, hey, I probably need to go to Macedonia. And so he immediately heads that way, crosses over uh, the Aegean Sea. He gets to what is today Greece. And uh, even though he was exactly, if you recall that sermon, he was doing exactly what God had called him to do. He was in the right spot at the right time in God's timing. It seemed like it all fell apart. He gets to Philippi and he ends up going to jail. But God used that. Uh, in fact, if he hadn't gone to jail, that Jalian, uh, Philippian jailer would not have gotten saved. And we said, as, we preached that ser- as I preached that sermon, that God cared more about that jailer getting saved than he did about Paul's personal comfort. And so God put him through that situation. And then he leaves Philippi and he goes to Thessaloniki and he's in Thessalonica for two weeks, two Sabbaths, the text tells us, and he ends up getting run out of town there. And so he goes south through Greece, and he, he, he can't, he doesn't know. I mean, can you imagine going into an area, leading a, you know, five, ten people to the Lord, starting a little small church, and then two weeks of discipleship, he's gone. And so he's curious. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know uh, wh- where their faith is, what's going on. And so he sends Timothy back with this letter. And so he begins in 1 Thessalonians 4 through 10, he says... Uh, Follow us as we follow Jesus. The text in 1 Thessalonians 3 says, or 1 3, remember before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And you become imitators of us and the Lord, for you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So when we were looking at this text, we said, Paul is essentially saying, Follow me as I follow Jesus. 
And so we talked about how, in a, how important discipleship is in the church and how that really is a great summation of what discipleship is, what you just saw about the women's ministry. Is, let's us together say, hey, we're going to go as hard as we can and live a life that's pleasing to our Savior. And as you do that, you know what? Stuff's going to go wrong. Things are going to go south. People are going to die. People are going to get sick. And as you go through that, you've got each other as a resource to speak into each other's lives. And you've got people to pray for you. You've got people to correct you. All of those things in place. And so we literally are saying to each other, follow me as I follow Jesus. And then Paul lists out some of the things that they're to be imitators of. We saw in 2, 1 through 8 that Paul goes through persecution and that that is normal, that we are to participate in the sufferings of Jesus. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 2, 2, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, remember he was beaten and thrown into jail, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And as we talked about this text, we said, Jesus said very clearly, don't be surprised when people respond to the gospel with anger. Don't be surprised if you're persecuted, if you're treated badly. In fact, the Bible says all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so we said it's normal for Christians, for the world to go, I don't like you. I don't like what you're doing. I don't like what you say. I don't like the way you look. I don't like you. That's our normal. And that's okay so long as we never think that people are the enemy. That lost people, if you remember the, the phrase that I use when I'm preaching this sermon, lost people act like lost people. That shouldn't shock us. We shouldn't go, ah. We should, and the thing that they need the most is not to start acting like us. The thing that they need the most, if you're a lost person, is Jesus. Paul also reminds them to live out their faith. That if you're telling somebody about Jesus and you're talking about Jesus and you're not living it out, nobody's going to hear a word you say. I think it... Um, I love it when a thought just goes and runs out of my mind. I'm, 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 I'm just 39 years old. I'm not old enough for this to be happening. <laughs> Jeff Little had told me one time that he had a mentor that would say to him, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Amen. And if you're telling somebody and talking to them about the love of Jesus and you're acting like a jerk, nobody's going to believe a word you're saying. And so Paul says you've got to live out your faith. Your faith has an impact on the way you treat the waiter. Your faith has an impact on the way you treat your wife and your kids. Your faith has an impact with the way you treat your boss and your employees. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, he says, We exhort each of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And if that is not an intimidating phrase, then you have never seen an intimidating phrase. Walk in a manner worthy of God? But if you think about it, that's what title we carry around. When you go to church, when you've got a Jesus fish on the back of your car, when you say, hey, I go over to North Glencoe, when you say, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, people will watch you. People are looking. They're waiting for you to mess up. And then in 1 uh, Thessalonians 2, 13 through 16, he compares and contrasts two different ways that we can respond to the gospel. 
You have the Thessalonians who, although they're undergoing persecution, their response to the gospel is to accept it as God's word, accept it as what it is, live it out. And then that's juxtaposition with the Jews who killed Jesus. They were saturated in the Bible. They knew the Old Testament. And their response was to use it to abuse other people. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 15 says, We also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judah, or Judea. For you suffered the same thing from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, who drove us out and displeased God with all and opposed all mankind. So there's one of two ways. You know, Jesus, when, when I was preaching through the Beatitudes, we, we saw where Jesus said, use the, the parable of the soils. God's word is God's word, whether you accept it or not. That's just the reality. God's word says what it says, means what it means, whether you or I accept it or believe it or not. And so that seed of the gospel, that seed of God's word falls into our heart. Now we've always applied that parable of the sowers to lost people. We've always acted like, okay, this is a text that's talking about how people hear the good news of Jesus and that alone. But remember who Jesus was teaching that to. You're, as the, the God's word falls into your heart, as the gospel falls into your heart to apply to us as Christians, whether it grows into something that bears fruit or whether it's choked out, the difference between those things isn't in the seed, right? The seed is the seed. But as that seed is cast, it's what you have in your heart. Do you allow the weeds of the cares of this world to choke out God's word? Do you toil on a weekly basis the soil of your heart and make sure that those weeds are pulled out? Or that if it's getting trampled down and packed that you come through with a tiller? You know, I've shared with you guys a lot that I, I have people that will say to me something along these lines. There used to be a time in my life when I was so excited about my faith. I would get up and I would be hungry to read God's Word. And I would pray and it seemed like my prayer life was just dynamic and amazing. And there was this time when I longed to be around other Christians. But I look back on that and it's just not today. And I always say, so... Are, are you in God's word? Well, no, I really just, I'm just not feeling it. Are you praying at all? No, not really. Are you around other Christians? No. Well, then your appetites have changed. Your body's craving for the things of the flesh because that's what you're feeding it. If you start reading in God's word, you're going to develop that hunger again. If I were to... Uh, Guys, if we were working out and you didn't eat anything, could you expect that you're going to be ready to work out tomorrow? No. You've got to be in God's Word. If you don't eat, you're not going to grow. And so Paul compares and contrasts those who hear God's Word and respond. They really hear it and they apply it and they live it out even in the hard times. It's precious to them. And then those who hear God's Word and go, yeah, that's a rule. That's a good rule for them, and they ain't doing it. And so, 
Paul compares those two, which brings us to the text today. And it is a strange text. It really is. In fact, I titled the sermon Torn because Paul is talking so, so much about how it just rips him that he longs to be with these people who he loves, who he witnessed to, who he was discipling, and he can't. And the per reason here is so clear. He can't be there, and he says, uh, We were torn from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Can you feel his longing to, to contact with them? Why can't he be there? Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. And so, literally, Paul wants to go be with those Thessal uh, the Thessalonians. He is praying for them. He's longing to be with them. And yet, for some reason, Satan is hindering them. And God is allowing that. Now, don't think for a minute that, God, that Satan is more powerful than God. Don't do it. I, I had someone, maybe three months ago, on a Wednesday night, that said, I need to talk to you for a minute. And I, I, I went to... to uh, they weren't a member of this church. I'd never seen them before. They actually just drove up on a Wednesday night and said, I need to ask you a question. And I, I said, okay. And they said, can I pray out loud? I said, what? I, I didn't even know what direction they were coming from. And she said, I, I want to know if I can pray out loud. Someone told me that I shouldn't pray out loud because if I pray out loud, then Satan's going to hear my prayers and he's going to fight against them. And I said, Whoever told you that has a really weak God. Because if Satan is more powerful than God and he hears your prayers, I mean, Satan is not stupid. Hey, have you, 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 those of us that have been married for, for over five or six years, I've been married for 25 joyful, blessed years. <laughs> 25 years. And you know what? There are lots of times when Ann can say, hey, do you remember that movie about that thing? And I'll go, oh yeah, and I'll know exactly what she's talking about. Because I've been around her enough where I can kind of tell what she's thinking and what, be able to put it in context. I'm not saying that I can read your mind. I love spending time with you. I love talking with you. <laughs> well, you know what? Satan's been around for at least 6,000 years. He can read humans pretty good. So you praying your prayers out loud or in your heart is really kind of immaterial. And whether you do or not... Satan is not more powerful than God. He is a created being. Okay, so here, why, and the thing that really struck me as I was praying, preparing this sermon and praying through it, why is it that Paul is wanting to do a good thing, right? He's not saying, hey, I want to go on this vacation. He's not saying, I want to go on this hunting trip. He's not saying, I want to go out there and go fishing. He's saying, I want to go spend some time with the people that I had led to Jesus that I discipled. Right? That's what he's longing to do. That's a good thing, right? That's something that you and I would all agree that that's something God would want him to do, right? And yet he can't do it. And according to the text, he can't do it because Satan has hindered him. Now, you and I might read that and go, well, then Satan's pretty powerful. So we probably one of the places where we see how Satan interworks the most is in the book of Job. So if you want to turn with me over to Job 1.1, uh, you don't have to because I'm, I'm going to read it. You know I am. And so we read the story of there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. 
And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So Job's a good guy. In verse 6 it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And from this conversation between Satan and Job, Job loses his children. Job loses all of his money. Job loses his health. He ends up uh, in his basement with sores, sitting around with four worthless friends telling him how sorry he is. From this conversation. Now Job goes to his grave and doesn't realize that this conversation happened in heaven. But this conversation is what started it. Now think about what just happened. God is on his throne. The sons of God are coming to report. I have no idea what that means, so please don't ask me because I don't know. That's, but it's what the text says. So the sons of God are coming up. They're giving their report. Uh, you know, Angel Schmuckatelli reporting is ordered. This is what's happened. Satan comes along with them. Satan is standing there, and God says, what you been doing, Satan? And Satan goes, oh, I've just been roaming around on the earth destroying stuff, messing stuff up. And God says, hey, that reminds me, have you considered Job? Now, that story tells me that either God knows what's about to happen, and he has orchestrated it, planned it, and it's all part of his plan, or God is dumb because he set Job up. Uh, John Piper compares it to this. It'd be like if somebody was a jeweler and he walked out of his jewelry store and he saw a guy sitting there with a ski mask on and a gun and the jeweler says, hey, what you doing there? And he goes, oh, I'm just looking for something to steal. And the jeweler says, have you thought about the diamonds that I got? I got some good ones. That's exactly what Job does. I mean, God does, right? But God uses these circumstances in Job's life to work in his life, to cause him to be more the man that God had called him to be. And furthermore, and wait, in some ways, more importantly, because of what happened to Job, we have the book of Job. How many of you here, when going through cancer, when losing a child, when losing a spouse, when struggling through hard, hard times, hasn't turned to the book of Job? And God has used it in your life. Same thing here. Here Paul wants to see those Thessalonians. He longs to see them. And God uses Satan. Satan is God's unwilling lackey. He used Satan in Job's life. And here in Paul's life, he uses Satan to... Do what exactly what he wanted to do because if Paul could have made it to Thessaloniki, we wouldn't have this letter. He wouldn't have needed to write it down. He could have just told them face to face. I've never preached a funeral when I didn't turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and look that believing family square in the eye and say, I would not have you uninformed, my brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. 
And so Christians for the last 2,000 years have been blessed because Paul was told by God, no, I'm going to use Satan to keep you from making it to that city. you got to write him a letter. He did it for us. And Satan thought he was winning. And yet God was just using him. God knows what he's doing. God no matter what is going on in your life right now, no matter what pain you're feeling, no matter what's happening to you right now, God knows what he's doing. I'm not trying to be arrogant. Whenever I've done a funeral of anybody and the spouse or the parent looks at me and goes, Preacher, why is this happening? I never propose that I understand why. I am not God. And I always look them square in the face and say, I I don't know. I don't know what God is doing. But I know who is doing it, and he is good. And so Satan has no authority in your life that God doesn't give him. And I believe in everything in me that everything that happens in our lives and everything that happens in human history is happening in such a way as to bring the maximum amount of glory to God. So Satan had been given free reign in Paul's life only because God had let him and God was using it. He says to these people, you are a crown of boasting to Jesus. In Revelation chapter 4.10 we read, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crown before the throne saying, worthy are you our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. They're casting their crowns before them. But what does Paul define as those crowns? He says to the church in Thessalonians, you, you people are our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming. I was uh, here at the church... We, we keep every piece of paper that comes through this church. And we literally have boxes that are just stuffed full of receipts from South Central Bell, back when that was a company. Uh, all, and so I, I was talking to Jason, and I said, how much of this stuff do we have to keep? And he said, well, keep seven years of it, and then the rest of the week. So we, Chad was up here, and we literally loaded the truck down with boxes of just receipts of apparently we used to keep a pretty tight check log where people had written checks and so I could look and say oh look well Miss Carolyn 12 years ago had had bought some staples I got it written down right here and so we we got all that stuff that was seven years old and we we wanted to make sure that we weren't getting rid of anything important so we had to look through those really super interesting files and then we we just in case there was account information or something we burnt the stuff that we didn't need we found a folder that had um uh, a church conflict from North Glencoe about 1998. Apparently at the old property there was a, there was a, a group of people. Um, your husband was one of them who wanted to convert the gym uh, into a place where they could worship. At the, at the, they'd outgrown the sanctuary and they wanted to buy, uh, spend $60,000. Because Chad and I read all the documentation on it. They wanted to spend $60,000 to buy uh, some mats and some stuff so that they could, they could have their Sunday morning services in the gym. And apparently there were some people that didn't like it, didn't want to do that, didn't want anything about it. And there was a big 
kerfuffle about it. In fact, the vote passed by two, we found. Uh, uh, to get 75% is a hard number to get in this church. I'm telling you. <laughs> I know from experience. And so the, the vote passed by two people that they, that they did it. Now, I, I had brought it up after we found it. I, I kept all that information, and I had talked to some of the deacons and elders. And we had to talk for a little while to, for them to even place in the history of the church where, when that had happened. Now, when it happened... There was lots of people upset. There were people, clearly people that had writ, left the church. There were some little nasty notes that people had written that were, was in the manila envelope. People were upset about something that to us we look back on now, some 16, 17 years later, and it seems, it seems kind of silly. But at that time, it was split in the church, man. People were angry. Now, as I read the notes, the secretary's notes from those meetings... People's names and things that, those names were important. <gasps> Jimmy Battles was the one, one of the ones that was fighting for this. And he says in there that we want to reach people. And I could feel the love. I've, I've never met him. I wish I had. But I could feel his love for the community and how he wanted the gospel to get out. I could feel people's passion. And as I read those names, what was argued about the point of whether or not we spent the money on some mats to go in the gym, nobody cares about. We didn't have that gym anymore. But those people and those interactions were important. As you read this text here, and Paul says, you are my crown. If you want to make an impact for eternity, if you want to do something that's going to last forever, look to your right and your left that saint beside you, will be around for eternity. We need each other to be speaking into each other's lives. You want to have an impact for eternity? Start pouring into somebody's life. Start sharing with them the experiences that you've had. Start talking with them about how much, how you were going through this thing and you didn't think you were going to make it. And then God showed up. We've all experienced those moments. And there's somebody in this room right now that needs to hear from you. You want to have an impact for eternity? You do that by pouring into people. Paul says, you are a crown of boasting to Jesus. In fact, so much so that even though Paul couldn't make it to them, he sent Timothy to establish and exhort them in your faith. Paul did the same thing to Titus. Uh, he sent Titus to... Uh, a little island, and he, he said to Titus, My true child in a common faith, grace and peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And he goes on and explains what those elders' job is to be. And we see that the monumental thing that's used to correct and move and guide is the same thing that we saw in the te earlier text. It's God's Word. He sends Timothy. And remember what he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. We have to be dependent as we do church on God's word. I was talking with uh, the, the counters in the teller room. And I was telling them that I had a lady. Uh, and uh, I go with a group of guys on Tuesdays and we go visit the shut-ins. And we were at Pruitt's because we go to Pruitt's every Tuesday. We're not going anyplace else. If you ever want to find us, we're at Pruitt's on Tuesday. 
and I don't care how much, how good a burger at Merle's is or how anywhere else, we're going to Pruitt's. I'm, I just, I'm just saying. So we were at Pruitt's, and I had a lady that came up to me, and she was wanted to, she knew, recognized that I was a preacher, probably had a really bright shirt on, so she, she wanted to debate with me an aspect of, of the church that she did, didn't like. Not, not North Glencoe, the church in general. And I talked to her for a while, and finally I said, you know what, it really doesn't matter what my opinion is. It's not my church. It's Jesus' church, and he gets to pick how we do stuff. And he, we're not just guessing at what he, we think his opinion about it is. The way that we find out what he wants us to do is by going to the Bible, and the Bible disagrees with you. I'm sorry, but your argument's not with me. Your argument is with God. And then I went and sat back down and was like, can you ever even just go to a restaurant without getting in one of those kind of talks? I'm like, apparently not. So Timothy is sent to establish and exhort them in this faith. Now look at this. This is strange. And this reinforces what, what we've just, just seen. He, he, Paul says, for you yourselves know... And he's talking about persecution. He says, Satan has hindered us. Think, look at all the negatives that's going on in this text. It's really amazing. We were torn away from you. We endeavored and were, were, were denied. We wanted to come to you and were denied. Satan hindered us. I could bear it no longer. We were left behind. We were not moved by these afflictions. You yourselves know that we were destined for this. That is not a happy thought. This is not a, God has a wonderful plan for your life. This is not a, hey, if you get saved, everything's going to work out. It's going to all be, now I am happy all the day kind of a thing, is it? There's a lot of suffering, a lot of pain that Paul's talking about. Read what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians. This is what this man is going through. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Paul is bragging to the, the Corinthian church, and he wants to make sure they understand that he's being silly and he's bragging. But the, the things that he's describing actually happen to him. With far greater labors, far more imprisonment, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, forty lashes lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. Frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This is not a good missionary brochure. This is not good recruitment. And apart from the other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I mean, I, I'm pastoring one church and sometimes it feels overwhelming. He's got all these churches with the pressure from day to day. I, I don't know if they were arguing about stuff. I don't know if he was getting emails and letters. that Hey, those, that robe you wore, that's not appropriate. You shouldn't be wearing those kind of robes in the pulpit. But I assume that he was getting that kind of feedback. 
And so all of those pressures, plus the beatings and the, you know, that reason why it's 40 lashes minus one is because the, the, the Jewish law said you couldn't beat anybody but 40 lashes. And so to make sure that they weren't punished, they would only beat somebody 39 lashes. Thank you. I'm so glad that you're, you're a strict follower of the law. So it's like a baker's dozen in reverse. You only got 39 lashes. And so he's going through all of this stuff. And here he says, this is my destiny. I am destined for this. That does not sound fun. That does not sound exciting to me. He really should have got a hold of some better theology, right? If only he had known he could have claimed that all this stuff wouldn't happen in Jesus' name. And so here he is undergoing all this, and he says, It's my destiny. Why? And it just as many times as you read in this text how horrible it, things are in the, this text in 1 Thessalonians. He's reading, Satan's hindering me. This bad thing is happening. This persecution is happening. All of these things are happening. You also read about joy. You are my joy. Hope. He's, he's also intermixing how bad things are with how filled with joy he is. I'm reading that. And I'm going, that's what I want. How is it possible that he is going through beatings, imprisonment, shipwreck, hunger, out in the cold? I mean, I, if, if the temperature's a little off in here, I get aggravated. I mean, I'll text Chad in a heartbeat. Hey, man, can you lower the air? <laughs> and here Paul's going through all this stuff, and yet he's talking about joy and hope? Well, I think the difference can be found in Colossians 1, 24 through 25. this is what he says. Now I rejoice in my new house. Does he rejoice in the boat? Does he rejoice in a new gun? Does he rejoice in a new car? Does he rejoice in the health of his grandkids? Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I am become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now, I want to let that percolate just a minute. Think about what he just said. He said, I'm suffering, I'm going through a lot of stuff. Why? For your sake and in my flesh... Read this really closely. I, Paul, a man, am filling up, shocking words here, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul, a man, would be just exactly as if I were to stand here in front of you and say, I'm taking care of everything that Jesus didn't quite take care of on the cross. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So there's something in Christ's afflictions that isn't sufficient, which is scary words for me to say, that Paul is saying that in his flesh he's filling up. That's how he can say, I'm rejoicing. Nobody rejoices in their suffering. I mean, if any, somebody's power went out last night in the store, nobody got up and turned the light on and it didn't come on and they went, yeah, woo! 
Right? That didn't happen. I was telling, uh, I was telling the deacons, and I, 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 I was in Nepal on a mission trip, and I was in this little, little bitty guy. In fact, everything in his house, he had built it himself. Everything in his house, I felt like I was in a hobbit house. I had to like lean down to get through. Little short guy, about four foot two. We're sitting on his porch looking out across his fields. Um, he had, he'd, he'd sent someone off miles away to a store and brought back an orange Fanta. And he acted like this was the most exotic drink that we had ever drank. And he, with pride, poured it in our cups. And we're, so, we're sitting here early in the morning drinking Fanta. And I really, all I wanted was some instant coffee. But I'm drinking his Fanta. And I asked through the interpreter, I said, what are those trees? There was a particular kind of tree that looked very pretty. And the guy said, well, that's a banana tree. And I'm like, a banana tree? Like the bananas you can eat? And the guy's like, yes, absolutely. And so he sent the little boy uh, that was there with us to go cut a bunch of bananas. And so this guy comes back with a holding a bunch of bananas. And so he literally plops those down in front of us. And they were little short bananas. And you pick them off the thing and sit there and eat them. And they were just bananas. I mean, just like you can get at the grocery store right there off a tree. It's crazy. So we're sitting there eating. And so I made the offhanded remark to Patrick, who was there with me. And I said, man, I need to plant me some banana trees in my yard. I love me some bananas. And so the translator leans over to him and says, he says, what did he say? And so he translated. Well, the guy gets this real concerned look on his face. And he, he's talking to the translator. And the translator says, he says, if you plant bananas, you have to be very careful. And I'm like thinking to myself, I ain't planting any banana trees. I live in Alabama. There's, I can't plant banana trees. And he explains again. He says, he says that whenever you plant banana trees in your yard, you have to plant citrus trees like a, a lemon or an orange tree, a citrus tree around the banana trees. And so I'm like, okay, now I'm intrigued. Why, you, you know, if, if you can't make a smoothie, they're not worth it. What exactly, what's, what's the point here? And, and he says, because the elephants are attracted to the smell of the banana trees and they will get up in the yard and tear your whole garden and fields up trying to stomp on those banana trees. And so the citrus trees irritates the elephant's skin and so they won't come through the citrus trees and tear up your bananas. And he has this, and I'm like, I don't have an elephant infestation problem. <laughs> I don't, I can plant whatever I want to and I don't have to worry about the elephants coming up in the yard and tearing up my yard. I mean, no matter care how much of an Alabama fan you are, you don't want elephants in your garden. Okay, I forgot completely how to tie that in with this. By the way, elephants, bananas. <clears throat> okay, I really can't. So uh, we'll just put that on the side. How did I tie that together? I had a whole thing. And how was it? Well, okay, well, let's just stick with the text. It'd probably be better anyway. Um, just, that was for free. If you plant a banana tree, be sure to plant lemon trees around it because if you don't, the elephants will get into your garden and tear everything up. Now, the text says something totally different. Um, maybe that's suffering. How did I tie that together? Okay, move on, move on. Okay, um, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake that in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Whenever you're trying to translate what God's Word says, one of the things that you can do is find where something similar is said in another book. You let God's Word be the commentary for God's Word. And in the book of Philippians, Paul is talking about an offering that was sent 
to him from the church in Philippi. And he's talking about a guy who, who brought that offering. He physically got the money and brought it to him. And he says in that text, in Philippians chapter 2, he says that he, the guy that brought the offering, filled up what was lacking in your gift. Exact same turn of phrase is used. Now that, I got a word picture. Now picture it in your mind. A church, you know, First Baptist Church, Philippi, takes, uh, or Corinth, takes up an offering to send to Paul and Philippi. The offering's sitting on the Lord's Supper table. Is there anything wrong with the offering? I mean, that money will spend, right? There's nothing missing from Christ's afflictions. What Jesus did on the cross was sufficient. When Jesus said, it is finished, it was sufficient. It means it's finished. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that offering that the church took up for Paul. He's in Corinth, the offering's sitting in Philippi. Does it do him any good? Can he go to the store and go, well, there's a whole bunch of money in Philippi. There's nothing wrong with the offering. There's nothing broken about the offering. But until somebody takes it to him and completes it, it doesn't do him any good, right? Okay, that's exactly what's going on here. Paul is saying that I rejoice in my suffering because what I'm doing is I'm giving you access, just like whoever took the offering to Paul gave him access to that money. I'm giving you access to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And so what Paul is saying is, I don't worry about what happens to me because what's happening to me is happening because I'm taking God's word out there to people, right? Okay, now don't, don't sidestep the fact and say in your mind, well, Paul's an apostle, Tom's a preacher, that's what he's talking about. No, 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 no. You are to preach the gospel to each other, right? Now, let me, let's finish the thought, though. Because it would be easy here just to go, oh, well, that's a neat thing. Now, think about this. If the text is saying that Paul is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, that means that Paul's speaking into other people's lives, sharing God's word, praying for people, working alongside of people. The work that we do with, if you're volunteering with the youth, the work that you're doing in Dreamers, the work that you're doing speaking in each other's lives, the work that you're doing in Sunday school class, the work that we're doing, that eternal work, that building up of crowns, is participating in what Jesus did on the cross. Do you see how amazing that is? Remember how many times, hundreds of times I've said that the entirety of the Old Testament is this drumbeat. Something is coming, something is coming, something is coming. And we know that thing that's coming is Jesus, right? And we know from that point of history where the cross is, forward, that we all look back to that. Do you realize that that's a way that you can touch eternity? That you, just as if you were there on that day, watching a God-man being hung between heaven and hell, you get to participate in that divine transaction when you turn and speak the gospel into somebody's life. You get to build up for yourself crowns in heaven. You can lay up for yourself treasure that moth and rust doesn't corrupt. Thieves don't break in and steal. You can have an impact for eternity by speaking into the person beside you's life. Do you see how powerful that is? And so as we come to this time of invitation, there are some of you here, 
your pastor here needs to get on our face and repent and say, God, I've been focused on all the wrong things. God, please help me have the strength to be that person that participates in that divine transaction. God, forgive me. Give me the strength to do what I need to do. If that's you, this altar is open. If you've never accepted what Jesus did on the cross, if you've never heard those words echo through your life, it is finished. This altar is open. I would love nothing more than to share the gospel with you. And if you're here this morning and you're looking for a church home, nothing about Christianity was meant to be done on your own. You can't say you love Jesus and not love the things that he loves and Jesus said he loved the church and gave his life for it. I'm not saying you got to come to this church, but you got to be a part of a church. And so if you're looking for a church home, we would love to have you. Father God, Lord, I pray that you apply your word to the hearts of your people. Lord, I thank you so much for this body of believers. God, right now, I pray specifically for some of, us, some, some of us who here are sick. Lord, I pray for Miss Charlene. God, I pray that you would be with her. Lord, I pray for, for Bobby. God, I pray that you would be with him. Lord, I pray for William. God, I pray for your healing hand in his life. God, if there's anybody else here who's sick and I, I just don't know, God, I pray for John. I pray for Steve and David. God, we believe you're still a God that heals. God, we know that you are more powerful than the enemy. So, we, God, we pray that you glorify yourself so that all the world will know that there's a God and he reigns. Whether you choose to deliver or not, we will worship you. Whether you choose to heal through miraculous means, through a doctor, or choose to say no, we will worship you. Lord, we love you. love you so much. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.